Welcome, listener, to episode 47 of the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast. My name is Kim McCall, and today I bring you a conversation about death, grief, and the afterlife with the Irish counsellor and self-described spiritual midwife, Mariel Clark. Mariel spoke with me from Galway, Ireland, and the influence of her Irish culture on her spirituality is woven throughout the conversation. Mariel speaks from the heart about her work assisting people transitioning to the extra-physical dimension from the physical. She shares a number of stories that transform the experience of death from something fearful and terrible into an opportunity of beautiful connection with the person transitioning. Mariel describes her understanding of the transitioning process from the perspective of both the person dying and those staying behind. Speaking with Mariel reminded me of the wide gamut of spiritual beliefs and the fact that we often meet people with whom we share many common values and understandings, while other understandings are quite divergent. It is almost as if, in terms of our understandings of multidimensionality and the human condition, we exist in only partially overlapping circles, akin to a Venn diagram. In the case of Marielle, for example, I feel totally on the same page with her when she shares her near-death experience, talks about her experiences of the silver cord and the understanding of OBEs, the importance of forgiveness and grieving while understanding that we do not really die, or the support she receives from her deceased dad and other non-physical beings. But when at the very end she talks about Ascended Masters, Lemurian Crystal Cities and Archangels, I notice a strong inner sceptic arise and realize we are operating on different paradigms. It is curious because if you have read my book Multidimensional Evolution, you will know that I also share some pretty out there experiences with extraterrestrials and other non-human beings, as well as earth crystals. And yet, when I cannot relate to experiences shared by others, I find myself treating the information with much caution. There are a number of reasons for this. One is that I know that there are people who simply make stuff up. I do not at all think this applies to Marielle, but it is something I have seen very clearly with several quite prominent self-proclaimed gurus. Another factor is that there are many factors that can lead us to misinterpret our own experiences. And finally I realize that these days my focus is much more on the practical everyday significance of altered states of consciousness and our multidimensional experience, rather than the out there kind of more what people call woo-woo stuff. I have seen more than one friend lose themselves in the magical realms that accompany a lot of New Age beliefs. Of course, this is very much in the spirit underpinning this podcast and my approach to consciousness research generally, which is don't believe in anything, experiment, have your own experiences, and I would add, follow the data. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Your book, Mariel, arrived for me really at an interesting time because I was just in the midst of writing uh, an essay about evidence for the afterlife. And so I was right up to uh, my neck writing about near-death experiences as one of the pillars of the evidence that I'm using. And then I was sent a copy of your book about um, near-death experience. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to talk to Mariel and find out all about her journey. So thank you for coming on from uh, lovely Galway. And 
I would love to start um, really with a bit, just a bit of background, uh, you know, your own, essentially your own journey to the point of getting to this place where you are writing about books about life after death and, and that, because I understand from reading your book that that's not always been something that's been present for you. You wouldn't probably as a teenager have imagined that that's what you'd be doing. So, um, mm. yeah, if you could give us, share some, some of your background, that'd be lovely. Well, thank you so much, Kim. It, and it's a, it's a great pleasure to be here and sharing this sacred time with you. I suppose to begin with, uh, I was reared, um, as I was, we were talking earlier, in, in, in a very rural Irish back, uh, background, family background. And my grandmother, my grandmother was a very, very psychic. And that time in Ireland... It's only now we're beginning to stand up and, and own our gifts, psychic and intuitive and otherwise. And my grandmother that time, it was frowned upon. So any of her psychic abilities were done behind, very much behind closed doors. My uncle was a seventh son of a seventh son. And the, my uncle was born in with very, very high frequency gifts of healing as well. Is, is that a significant uh, configuration in Ireland? The it, is, son it, of- it is a huge thing. The seventh son, that would mean, uh, Kim, that there is no daughter in between. That it's all a lineage of male sons, of male, uh, one after the other. Right. And not alone did it happen in my grandmother, but her mother had seven sons, one after the other. So when my uncle was born, he was again, this was the second like generation of seven son of seven sons. And so his gift was huge. And he was actually born as well with the have you heard of the call? It's like a. I have uh, I have heard, but yes. it's because my name McCall, right? One of the, one oh, of the stories yes. about it is that it relates to that that I was told. But to explain. Oh, it's not amazing! Yes. Wow, we're really striking energy points here. The call he was born with the call on his head, and this call it's like a, a calcium cap, and the midwife. Uh, that time, a lot of of Irish. Uh, I'm not just saying it's privy to Ireland. But a lot of um, Irish people going back the ages, some were born with this call on their on their head. And it had to be very, very carefully removed because it was like an outer layer right on the skull, like a skull cap for the want of a better word. Like what the, dare I say, the Pope, what he'd wear, a little skull cap. And that was removed and it was allowed to harden and it was given to the birth mother. And what what used to happen then when a lot of people emigrated and were leaving Ireland that time and they would always come to my grandmother for a piece of that, a little piece of that call. It was to bring them good fortune. It was to bring them good health. It was to bring them abundance down the line and it was to keep them connected to their homeland. So that was the... My uncle was born, who was the seventh son of a seventh son, with that on his head. And then my own brother, who passed on uh, in 2002, he was extremely psychic. And uh, he was, um, 
he was extremely psychic, so much so, uh, Kim, that he he had a premonition of his own death three weeks before he actually died. Yes, you talk and about that in your book, yes. Incredible, incredible, Kim. And, and of course, you know, um, that he was the youngest of us and uh, to lose a sibling younger is kind of defies the laws of nature as well, no more than my mother losing a child, you know. So then then I suppose I was always used to this kind of energy, uh, Kim, but could I, my could I, siblings, sorry. I would just like to ask, um, uh, before you go into, you know, where, where your own trajectory, just your grandmother's story just intrigues me a bit because you said that she was psychic but behind closed doors. So I'm just wondering how yeah. that played out in in practice right like like how did you know that she was psychic was that spoken about did she do little secret seances yeah not so much seances kim but what she used to do there was always in ireland you have your front door and your back door so the front door is for strangers but the back door is for for somebody you know so the her back door was always open and there was never like what we would have now we'd ne- there was no diaries and there was no scheduling people would just come to the back door who were in desperate need of some kind of guidance or if they had lost somebody where were they now so she was and also now not that I am not that I can do it she used to be able to read the tea leaves as well you know, you'd get somebody, you'd make a cup of tea for somebody if they're sitting in your kitchen and you'd get them to drink down. That time there was real tea yeah, and uh, real granules and they'd, they'd drink their cup of tea and she would catch what was remaining. She would throw away and there was a configuration, apparently like a kaleidoscope of words that she would pick up on the tea leaves. And she was able to read the tea leaves. Now, I know it's a dying. I think there's only one or two in Ireland that have this gift now. But she was one of those as well. So uh, she was uh, she did all of this behind closed doors. And I loved her dearly. And she she was very in tune as well. So much so, Kim, that uh, this uh, seventh son of the seventh son, he was going out to work one morning and he was an electrician. And it was a beautiful, sunny morning. So she, he came back in, into, it was a little cottage, very humble abode. And he came back and he changed out of his rubber boots. And he said to his, my grandmother, he said, it's too warm for those heavy boots. He said, I'm just going to put on my, my, the rubber boots. I'm just going to put on my, my shoes. So, and he went to work. And that time we used to have marquees in Ireland where dancing and music would happen. The the tents would be pitched in a field and it was a great place for gathering for music. And apparently um, one of the wires around the main pole, the main totem pole as such, was live. And for some freak reason, he touched it and he got electrocuted. But before they came to tell my grandmother that her son, who only left less than two hours previous, had died, she already had gone to her bottom drawer. And the bottom drawer came that time in Ireland. They always held a set of white starched sheets. And that was to lay your loved ones out in. 
And when they knocked on the, she had already taken them out and placed them on the bed. And when they knocked on the door to tell her, they said, I'm afraid we have bad news. And she said, I know I've already taken out the sheets and we can lay them out in there. You know, so she already knew mm. as well. That's how psychic she was. So I suppose, Kim, you know, being living that type of a gift in secret was 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 very common. And even for myself, as I have grown up in a different Ireland, um, I hid it for a long time. And you were asking me about my trajectory. So then when I was um, 16, I had a huge, incredible experience with Mother Mary in a grotto and I her she just appeared materialized before me like I'm looking at you now but with this beautiful um energy field around her that was vibrating and her head looked at me and her hands were joined and her head tilted to one side and she smiled and I ran out of the place I ran for dear life so was, you were, you know, were you, this was a this was a natural a cave sort of environment or it was it was what I would call it was a grotto. So we had an old monastery and it was a beautiful, it was a church, very old, dating back to oh my god, I think it was 1700s. But besides that old chapel or monastery, they had this beautiful it was like a grotto built in stone right. and you would walk in and there was a natural stream that used to run down the walls, but they had a beautiful, uh, like a grotto set up to Mother Mary. You could go in and you could light your candles, pray for whatever you needed, praying for at the time. So every morning of my life going into school, I used to visit the grotto every morning. I used to find it huge. I used to find a piece there. And I used to find it would set me up for the day. And no matter what teacher would pounce on me or give out to me or thump me, even then at 16, we were being thumped. And yes, so um, I used to find that was my sanctuary in the morning. And that was my, my energy boost for the day. It was like an elixir for me. Mm. And this beautiful phenomenon this beautiful spiritual experience, which I told nobody about either, came for about uh, 20 years because I was terrified they might think I was mad, which would have been very likely at that time. So, um, and then I was always very in, uh, not that I was religious, but I had a huge faith in a God, in a God presence. I always felt I was never alone. I always felt that there was somebody watching over me, somebody minding me. And yes, in Ireland, we always, you know, we, I went to the nuns. And that's another story, Kim, going to the nuns and bless, bless the nuns for the incredible work they have done around the world. They have done amazing work, you know, with, with their, their missionary work and with orphans and things like that. But when I was in, say, very young school, I, the, the nuns would talk about uh, punishing God and uh, if we were good, well, we'd go to heaven. And if we were bad children, well, then there was hell's fire and a devil and we were going to be cast into the fires of hell. But I would always challenge them, even, and I was only seven, eight, ten, and I would always say, no, 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 you're wrong. The God I know is a loving God and he loves me no matter what I do. So 
I used to be punished by, I was put behind the blackboard for the rest of the day and a dunce's hat on my head. But it never stopped me. You know, I always felt, you know, I was very happy behind the blackboard. I didn't have to partake in the day at all. I was away in my own world. (laughs) So it wasn't easy that time. But then, as I said, this beautiful spiritual experience when I was 15, it was incredible. And it has never left me. And as I have evolved more soulfully, Kim, so too has the essence of that spiritual experience within me. And Mother Mary is one of my ascended masters that actually works with me now as well, well, has been for forever and a day. So, and then I, and then I, as I was studying, even though I had this huge faith and uh, an understanding of something more powerful within this universe, I went off and I studied science. I became a serologist. So my background is very scientific. My original background is very scientific, right? So, so what is it a serologist was only, study? A serology is where you work in a lab and you analyze bloods for okay. various for various um, malformations and, and things like that. So um, it was it was only then in I suppose 1992 when I had my dear, my own near death experience that I wondered, okay, well, why did I survive? Because I didn't want to live at that stage, Kim, because I was I was very unhappy with my life. I was living in a very, very uh, volatile, abusive relationship. And I just, because he was a policeman and he had rank, um, he told me nobody would ever believe me. So, of course, my self-esteem, my self-worth, my confidence was shattered. So I believed him. So I lived and stayed in this marriage. And it was a reprieve for me when I was told I had serious cancer. I had cervical cancer. And I, instead of saying, oh, no, why me? I was great, great. One way to get rid of myself, right? So, and I know that sounds very negative and defeatist mm. right now. but Well, I think that's know, often what happens when you're in, in a sort of toxic relationship and your sense of self is worn down and you've been... <laughs> You know, you lost any perspective of hope, and you just want to get out. That's not absolutely, point. and and any any kind of uh, exit is so welcome. So when I was told I had cancer, it didn't scare me, it didn't frighten me, and I just said, "Okay, great." So when the surgeon had said to me a few days later that I had died, and I do remember leaving my body. Of course, I do, and you you may like to ask me about that later. But it was it was just the peace I felt. The absolute love that I felt in that space at that time will never, ever leave me. There was no pain. There was no anguish. There was no worry. There was no fears. It was just pure love. It was, I was suspended in this vacuum of beauty, love, and peace. And I... Please please talk us through the experience. So, so, um where you connected with this love and peace. So was it during an operation or? or, um, It was during the operation. And because it was so extensive, Kim, um, there was lots that needed to be uh, removed at the time. And there was was complications as well. But um, I remember leaving my body. I remember floating above it and looking down and I was, 
that's me. That's me. And not realizing because I hadn't, I had known nothing about near-death experiences at that stage. Nothing. And it was only, and I remember, as I said, just floating into this beauty, this vacuum of light. Now, some uh, there's a lot of commonalities in within DE experiencers like myself, but not all of us experience the exact same. I didn't go through a tunnel. I was catapulted straight away into this, as I call it, a vacuum, into this nucleus of love. I was, I, I was suspended in it and held in it. I felt it was forever, but it wasn't forever. Yeah, but it was uh, days later when my surgeon came and he said to me, you know, when I was in the position to hear properly, he said, um, you know, he said, uh, you died on the operating table. And he said, we had a job to get you back. And he said, you kept bleeding outward. And no matter how much blood we infused, it, you, it still came out. So he said, you were, you were so lucky that we were able to get you back. And he said, the only conclusion I can come to at this stage is, he said, somebody was minding you. Somebody in a higher power was minding you. And I suppose then my next year was spent on recovery. And I started to wonder why. Why was I, why was I spared? For what reason? And I suppose came three months after my near-death experience, I had what I call the very, very dark night of the soul. A night that I could know my, my ex, bless him. And I have to say he has been my greatest teacher on Mother Earth. And I chose him. I now know because of all the, the, the journeys out of body and the reason that we have soul lessons and mastering them. I know now that he, I chose him to be the catalyst for me to evolve more soulfully. I needed to choose him as my husband, as my partner, to teach me the lessons I had not learned in other lifetimes. And he has been my greatest teacher. I learned how to forgive. I learned how to let go. Now, it took me a long, long time to forgive. But the dark, I'll go back to the dark night of the soul. And three months later, I mean, there was, uh, as we would say in Ireland, when when a husband and wife are not talking, Kim, there was all picture and no sound. So nobody was talking. So and I found the I found that was more mentally challenging than being physically abused. I found that, you know, the emotional blackmail of not being able to talk because I love to talk. And um, that really broke me. It broke me. And I just said, I can't do this anymore. So I had full intent. Sorry, Kim. And I guess at that stage in Ireland, divorce, I mean, divorce, I know divorce and separation has, has been a long time very challenging in yeah. Ireland. And I'm sure even though it's probably more possible now, the stigma is probably still greater than in many other places of the world. Well, it's funny you say that, uh, Kim, because... Um, in Ireland that time, there was no divorce. Yeah. Yes, there was separation, but it was very few and far between. And, and the whole thinking, the mentality then came was, okay, you've made your bed, you lie on it. 
and lying on your bed meant that you didn't bring shame to your family and you didn't bring shame to yourself and you didn't bring yourself to the attention of your community, right? So I just, it was much easier just to, and I felt, I suppose I was fragile. I was very, I was in despair. So three months later, I decided, uh, one night, in the middle of the night, about, and I know it was two-ish in the morning, and I just said, and my ex was after buying a beautiful new car. And he had, bless him, and I'll say bless him because he's been my greatest teacher. He told me I would never sit in it and I would never drive it. So I, out of revenge, it was a pure act of revenge, which is a horrible way to, to um, enforce an act of suicide when it's revengeful. You know, there are consequences for a revengeful suicide, which I have, uh, which I know now through my spirit guides. But what actually happened then, uh, Kim, I, I took his keys and I was in my pajamas. I was there. I hadn't even a dressing gown. I had a cardigan. I had nothing. I just, it, that'll tell you, I was just intent of going out the door with his new car. And he would never, by the time I was finished with it, he wouldn't use it either. So that was my act of revenge, my final act of revenge. But in saying that, it was like um, my father had died the year before and I was very connected to him and he had a great faith in me. He always, if I would say something kind of mysterious or kind of mystical, he would always support me. I would never say to any of my siblings, I'd never say to my mom, my father always understood. And the reality was that time came in, in, in Galway, there, there is a docklands and there was no protective barriers. So you could come under the bridge, come right around under the bridge. And if you didn't know the road, you could go straight into the deep waters there. So that was my plan. I was going to come around the bridge. I was going to put my, my foot on the accelerator and I was going to close my eyes. And that was it. But as I was going out my front door, my father's image completely consumed the door, my door. And his hand came out like that. And he said, Molly, could you keep your powder dry? He had a pet name for all of his daughters. And uh, Molly, could is a term of endearment, like my love or my pet. Keep your powder dry. In other words, keeping your powder dry, Kim, in Ireland is don't do anything in haste. And that was one of my father's favorite cliches. Keep your powder dry. No matter what was happening in life, keep your powder dry. So then the next thing I know, Kim, is I'm sitting on my couch in my sitting room. And three hours at least has gone by. And I have no recollection of those three hours. The, I was shaking. My teeth were chattering. I was frozen. I was numb. And I suddenly it dawned me. I had three beautiful babies, three beautiful children in their bedrooms. And they were going about to lose their mother some hours earlier. But what I understand now came from spirit, those three hours that I have no recollection of. I And I did a lot of past life and a lot of hypnotic uh, journeys to find out. but. It never happened. It was like there was a block. But what I know from my guides now, they have told me that that was 
that those three hours or more, they were holding my soul and healing it. I was in a holding space, if you could understand that. I was in a holding zone. I was being fed and nourished by God's love and healing light. And that made sense to me now, because when I started working with the soul of others, and uh, I understand that the soul can exit when it's been so traumatized, and then it has to be retrieved back to the body of the person. So for me, it was that was my awakening. My dark night of the soul was so profound. And then the next morning, I went to uh, a solicitor, we say here in Ireland, maybe a barrister there. I went to a solicitor and uh, that was my, I suppose, my passport to the beginning of my passport to freedom. Yeah. And I can imagine it was the beginning because um, uh, I'm, I'm assuming it took quite long after being in a relationship for a long time, you know, having three children with the man, having to kind of rebuild your sense of self and yeah. um, your self-worth and your path. That would have been quite a quite a trajectory, even with the guidance that it sounds like you were getting at that point then. And, and you know, you know, uh, Kim, it was like um, a whole new world opened up to me. And, and like that in Ireland, Kim, I, 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 I had to give up my career when I got married because it was not the dumb thing. So I, I had a, like a very strong position and I was, earning, I was earning more money than my ex-husband was, even though he was in the police force. But I ended up with absolutely nada. I ended up with no money, no car no phone. I didn't even have a bicycle. So, but I had freedom. There was a freedom and a peace in my soul that I had never experienced. But in saying that, I I started to, somebody gave me a gift of uh, Louise Hayes' book, You Can Heal Your Life. And I started to read that and understanding when the body is compromised and when you're, you're not singing the language of your soul, that something happens, that your physical body starts eroding and illness strikes it. And that's what happened to me. And my reading the book, when it came to the chapter on forgiveness, I went, what? Forgiveness? Never, 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 never. I'm perfect. I did nothing wrong. So I, I used to flick the pages and lick and flick through them. And then other books I would take up was all about the power of forgiveness and it's only it was months and months later when I did the exercise that Louise Hay had asked and I met her later in life and uh, it was about getting a mirror Kim and and looking in the mirror and keep focus look at the eyes the windows to your soul and see the inner child within and I did have my epiphany because eventually I did cry and I started to ask to forgive myself for my part in whatever lessons I needed to learn from my ex. Forgive me. Forgive. I had to start learning yes. to forgive myself. Right? Yes. So and important. then huge. And, and you see, we forget to forgive ourselves. And we often and try and rush to forgiving the other person, even though we're still angry and we're still resentful. 
yeah. because we think we should and yeah exactly and, and that is the right thing to do and yeah. we forget that when you forgive somebody it's a gift you're actually giving to yourself it's liberating your soul it's liberating your your you physically emotionally mentally and spiritually and being able to forgive it's it is it is an art there is an art in forgiveness and it's amazing, I suppose, in my, in my line of work as well, Kim, the amount of people that hold on to anger and hold on to bitterness. And what they don't realize, they're, it's like carrying a big monkey on their back. It's there chiseling away at their energy body and it's creating ill health and an imbalance within the bodies. So I learned, thankfully, very earlier on in time, forgiveness was sweet and forgiveness was the gift I, I would always give to myself so it's I find if somebody does something to me now it's I just say bless them in love and light their problem not mine but in forgiving then I started to uh, start doing other courses even though I, I still and I went back then and I studied a master's in in training in human resource systems and uh, um, I I never really fully used it, but I was always e eager for knowledge. I was always eager. I studied other cultures, other religions, other faith paths. And I started any money I had then that I started to air, I would invest it in a course. I would do crystal healing, angel healing, IET, Reiki, studied, became a shaman. So and then eventually I went to London and I met the wonderful Louise Hay. And I remember the morning I got the opportunity to talk with her. And uh, I said, thank you. You brought great, your book brought, brought great healing into my life at a very vulnerable time. And she said, okay, honey, sure. That's what we're here for. And I had a beautiful photograph taken with her and her book has been, I suppose, one of my Bibles, my go-to as well. In, in other times, I will always pick it up. It may be a few months, it may be a year. I will always pick it up and I will open some page and I'll say, what do I need to know in this now moment? You know, so it's been a long journey, I suppose. And then I, I met wonderful, I, I took some training with uh, Deepak Chopra, uh, I took some training with Dr. Brian Wes on reincarnation because you spoke there earlier, uh, you know, about you doing your thesis on the afterlife. And then to prove of the proof of an afterlife is there. It's 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 been recorded and documented for thousands and thousands of years, thousands, many times. And Plato, yes. yes. And I'm sure you've discovered that through your research, Plato, Aristotle. Um, all of those believed in the afterlife. They even there is even going back, I think, to the fourth century to Pythagoras. He could see all his past lives, and his he firmly believed that uh, when the body dies, the soul returns to the source, which is God, and and that's documented for Pythagoras. And you know, so the afterlife is to prove it, and it's like that. And it's not that I set out in, in my book, We're After, to prove it, Kim. It was like, this is the knowledge I had. These are yes. the experiences. And 
the information, the evidential evidence to prove that there is afterlife. There's far more to prove there is an afterlife existing rather than there is nobody that has ever come along, Kim, that has said disprove that there is an afterlife. Not to my knowledge. No, I think uh, people would say, well, I know people would say this because I did a bit of a survey when I was doing my, my essay that you can't really prove a negative. It's very hard to prove a negative. So people are, uh, I guess, essentially uh, just people who don't want to accept the evidence need to dismiss it in different ways, right? They have to say, well, it could be psychological or it could be some phenomenon that we don't yet understand, uh, which, of course, you know, the, the, the brain is a mysterious thing and, and we can do amazing things really rapidly, um, but there just is too much evidence of really clearly evidential near-death experiences yeah. where people have the sort of perceptions that you describe of seeing activities they can later confirm, um, the well-documented past life cases, right, that are so yeah. so well-established that it's absurd to... Right to dismiss off. it. To dismiss it. And, and you know, and you know, Kim, it is. I feel very passionate about this. You know, and and I must tell you how the book came about. I feel very, very passionate about the afterlife because I've seen it. I've had glimpses. I've been there, and I don't have to prove it. It's 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 there. I've I've experienced it, and it's nothing to fear. And this is what is hugely common amongst the uh, indie experiencers. It's like the fear of death is totally, totally gone. There is no more fear of death and dying because we have had a glimpse of where we're going. We have had the privilege of, of being bathed in this divine love and light. Yeah. And, and like that, Kim, the, the, the evidence is there and Going back to even talking about some of the, the, the wonderful people like Dr. Raymond Moody, who has huge studies, scientific studies to endorse the afterlife is there. And Dr. Pin Van Lommel, who is the Dutch cardiologist, I'm sure you've came across him, uh, yes. Kim, in your, in your research. I mean, he, he just he spent 10 years collating all these facts from people that had near-death experiences. But it's funny, Kim, I don't call it a near-death experience. I call it the death experience because you, you've you actually died, you know? I It's the death experience and you have been resussed and brought back. Yeah. And this Dr. Pin Van Lommel, he was able, categorically being able to state now that the, the consciousness survives beyond the brain. And that consciousness survives beyond the physical body. And that is huge for any, any scientist or doctor to be able to categorically state and the and produce the evidence in support of it as well. Yeah. And, and, you know, have you come across, Kim, of uh, Dr. Victor Zamet? Yes. The lawyer who presents. Now, he's just, I, I followed him for years, Kim. And... He has a million dollars held in a vault for anybody. Now, this is going on 30 years. I, I, I think he's, he must have been matching the, the opposite, the James Randi bet. Do you know the James Randi? 
No, actually, I haven't well, heard well, of James that. Well, James Randi was did I think he started it right? He had a million dollar challenge for anybody to prove uh, the afterlife, and oh. uh, and he was James Randi was a was a professional skeptic and a stage magician, and and he said it was all these things you know mediumship and everything was just um, made up. So he had that. And yeah. there's a lot of you could research it. There's a lot of people that have looked at you know how disingenuous his offer really was, and how he wouldn't really um, provide the right space for people or, or give people the right um, context in which to actually prove it. If they explore, could. yeah, yeah. Um, and but I, I'm assuming I haven't spoken to Victor about it, but I'm guessing his million dollar bet is kind of the counter, the counter offer. Yeah, um, this is going on. Uh, the, this was, I think, was put forward. It came in 2002, right? And he. I mean, he was a lawyer in, in New South Wales and he started to have these. Now, Morton Swedenberg in the 1700s, Swedenberg, I'm sure you've heard of him as well. Yes. He he was a great mathematician, astrologer. He was an inventor. He was a mystic. But at 55, he started to have all of these incredible encounters with the spirit world. So profound was his experiences that there is huge documentation by Swedenborg, many books to highlight the afterlife. But Dr. Victor Zamet, he, he, he took the analogy that, okay, I'm a lawyer, so I need to present evidence. That, that's, that was his life. I need to produce the evidence. So through his research, over years and years of research, he finally wrote a book, the, A Lawyer Presents a Case for the Afterlife. Yeah. Compelling evidence, uh, kid. Anybody who is the biggest skeptic, incredible skeptic, cannot but wonder after reading it. And he, I agree. Yes, he, I agree. I, I think yeah. it's a well put together book. Um, oh, I incredible! Did, I, I did try to um, get my skeptical, a skeptical relative of mine who's also a lawyer to read it. Oh, I thought, okay. well, you know, you're a lawyer, and and yeah. he just dismissed it out of hand, saying, "Well, a lawyer can argue anything." <laughs> yeah, so, you know. but the reality is, Kim, you but need the, the evidence. Data stands for itself. The, yes, you know. But he put a challenge up of a million dollars, which is all above board. It is it's sitting in a bank somewhere and waiting for somebody. It's there. The challenge ends in twenty twenty five, and to date, nobody has come and said that there is no afterlife yeah. others they have come yeah. and they've tried to disprove it doesn't exist but the, the the evidential evidence in support of it would not stand up whereas his evidence would stand up in any court of law mm. you know so i mean it's an intrigue and it's very intriguing uh phenomena uh, kim and it's like as i said even as i'm talking about it i come alive with the energy and the essence the, the facts are there, the data is there, the research is there, all, all the people that um, even like for past lives, all the evidence is there with Michael, Dr. Michael Newton, who did years and years of study with children who had vivid recall of their, after, uh, of their past lives, you know, and children also having their NDEs and what they experience. And for children to... The children, they were, you know, the research shows that children are too young to have been impregnated with uh, societal norms. They they would not have the knowledge 
of knowing what an NDE is. And they could describe leaving their bodies, having the same experience as adults. So there is so much information, credible information, that hugely supports afterlife phenomena. Huge. I agree. Well, and I think that so so um, just thinking about uh, switching a bit and just talking a bit about the key points of your book. So you have essentially three sections and the first one is fear of death. And in that section, you talk about the sort of things we just talked about now, really the the evidence for um, survival. So I I guess that hopefully will assist people to deal with the fear of death and approach death in a more conscious way. And then the other two areas you deal with are grief, which is hugely important, and uh, and then love and forgiveness. So it'd be nice to mm-hmm. talk a bit about each of those. And I think maybe start off with grief. Um, uh, sometimes people with um, you know spiritual beliefs, one of the risks I think I've seen, one of the things I've seen is that uh, this sort of bypassing, right, bypassing grief for example bypassing painful emotions and thinking that for example because you know the child will continue you know the the loved one will whatever well then you shouldn't be grieving or you know just get on with things or you know encouraging people to move on so you you really talk about i think the importance of grief um Mm. quite well and and maybe because you work with people right so maybe explain that and then touch on the griefs because you I understand you're well, here in Australia. We call it death doula. Um, oh yes, death doula. Where um, I'm, I've been known as a spiritual midwife. Yes. And my role would be, and th- this was the name that was given to me by the spirit world. <clears throat> and it's ironic enough talking when we spoke about past lives earlier, uh, Kim. I, uh, I, I wondered why I felt so comfortable and at home uh, sitting with people that are about to make their transition, helping their soul to leave their physical body unencumbered without attachments to the physical world. And I could never fully understand why I was called upon to sit and be the catalyst to bring about this. It's a beautiful healing. And to be at the deathbed, Kim, of... um, somebody that's about to make their transition. It's a very, very sacred and privileged place to be. And while I have studied many healing modalities, including um, healing the light body, which would be like soul retrieval, this is about, it's a shamanic practice where I'll be called by the family. And normally what actually happens before that came, I would have been dealing with this client I would have been dealing, helping them. Maybe, maybe they might have come to workshops or night classes that I was running on loved ones of whisper away or death and bereavement or um, spiritual awakening. So they would know my work and they would know me. So I'm often asked by somebody who would have been a participant in my class to come and to assist them when their time for transitioning will come, which is very sacred. And one of the the first time, Kim, that I was actually called to do this, this is going back many, many years. And um, I was going into the hospice at the invite of one of my clients. And 
when my client uh, was admitted to hospice, she had said to her sister, just in case that I may go into a coma or go unconscious, will you please ask Mary L to come and assist me in whatever way she's guided to do before I die? So I eventually, I get a phone call from, from my client's sister and she said that my client had been in a coma for three days and could I come? And that she felt the time was right. So um, I pop into the the hospice and that time now, Kim, it's only now we're all integrating a mind, body and spirit um, nucleus that we can't have one without the other, that they're all interconnected. Your physical body is connected to your mental, emotions, physical body, but it's also connected to your spiritual body. And your spiritual body is the is the most integral part of us. And so I was called into the hospice and I was met with a barrage of, uh, how would I say it? I won't say insults, but questioning. Who are you? You're, you know, I'm told you're an angel lady. Um, what are you going to do to her? You do know she's dying. Um, are you going to touch her? She's very weak. She's this. And I, being me, I, I will, spirit guides will always give me a little bit of humor. And I said, it's okay. I said, I've actually left my wings in the back seat of the car for this purpose. And uh, she just looked at me as if to say I was off the wall. And uh, I did invite her to come in and be a witness to what I was about to do, what I was guided. It's never the same. No no two people's um, recoiling of their energy systems will ever be the same. While I use the same process, there is always something different t- added on or taken from the previous. And uh, what did you when just I say? Woke, what did you just, how did you just describe it? Sorry, recoiling of the energy system? Recoiling, yes. Recoiling. It's like our, have you heard of our chakra system? Sure. Right? Yes. So we have, now a lot of people say we have seven. Um, I've been shown at least 12 uh, chakra systems because we have the transpersonal ones, which is above our crown as well. We actually have the causal, we have the soul star, and we have the stellar gateway. And that is the ladder that brings us into the heavenly realm. And then we have a, an extra one that divided uh, some time ago between our belly button and our sacral, and that is important as well. And then we have the earth star, which connects to the earth beneath our feet. That's about uh, eight, 10 inches beneath our our feet. So it's important that all of those, especially at transitioning, that they're recoiled anti-clockwise, very respectfully, very gently, and as I would recall, recoil, say the, the earth one, start with the earth, bring it and finish in the heart. Then I start with the, the base and bring it back to the heart. So it's a process and it's a very sacred ritual. It's a very, very sacred ritual. But while I was doing that with my, my client, when I had it done, but when I walked in, Kim, I didn't expect, I expected just her sister there. But when I walked into that room, her whole family were there, including her ex-husband, her son, her mother in a wheelchair, her father, her brother, her other two sisters. And I went, oh, my. and then I said, oh, my God, I have an audience. I'm not used to an audience because I need to 
go into my, uh, shall I say, my spirit body. And I, that was the first time I actually had an audience when I was, and I said, okay, God, you've put me here. There's a reason I'm here. Take over because I am absolutely melting here because I, I did not expect an audience. So um, while I was doing the recoiling of her chakra system, closing down the energy, the energy lines, um, all of a sudden she just sprung up in bed and her arms just reached out to the people in front of her. But I know it wasn't to the people in front of her. It was to her loved ones behind that had, that had already met. Yes. And I could see that. I could see her grandmother had come. I could see there was a, a baby. And obviously, which I had never known, and it, it never matters. Obviously, she had had a miscarriage and this baby was there to greet her as well. So um, she just sat up and, and, and reached out into the ethers as such. And uh, that's always a huge sign that, the, you know, that life is ebbing and, and the, the life force is leaving the body. And then all her family came around. I said, she can still hear, say what you need to say. Now is a beautiful time. The soul hears everything at that stage and the hearing is sharpened. So she, they, they all did their their little, whatever they needed to do, very respectfully. She lay down in bed and I knew then, I always know when it's time. I closed the space. I closed that sacred space. You open sacred space and you must close it with sacredness. And I left the room. And as I was going down the corridor, I heard somebody, Marielle, Marielle, wait up. And I turned around, there was our brother. And I went, oh my God, because he had already said to me when I entered the room, I don't want you here, right? So not alone did I meet her with the matron, but I met her with her brother. I don't want you here, you know? Because he kind of said I was a freak, right? So that was fine. I said, that's okay, but I'm here at the respect of your sister, she has asked. And I said, I fully understand what you're saying. And I said, I'm sorry you're feeling this way, right? So I, I'm down the corridor and I see this man running after me and I went, oh, God, now I'm in for it, right? But he he tugged at my, at my elbow and he said, Marielle, I'm sorry, he said. Something happened in there, he said, but I have no comprehension of Something obviously very spiritual, I don't know what is heaven, he says, that came to her. I don't know what it was. But he said, thank you for the experience. You know, and it was 10 years later I met. 10 years later, came I meet her sister in Galway. And, and this lady, I'm in a shop. I'm buying some willow pattern, beautiful images. And uh, I get a tip on the shoulder and she says, Marielle, it's Marielle, isn't it? And I said, yes. And... Uh, she said, you don't know me, do you? And I said, sorry, no. So she said, she starts to tell me, you were that you came to my, you, my sister attended you, I called you, blah, blah. And she said, my brother has been a transformed man ever since. And she said, I think we have you to thank first. And I said, no, I'm sorry. I can't take any credit for nothing. I said, I'm the mere vessel, the channel which things happen through. So I have some lovely stories like that, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. beautiful stories. And 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 uh, my friend Yvette that that died, she was a beautiful lady, 
and and Kim, it was the first time I witnessed the silver cord. Are you familiar? I was going to ask you about the silver cord because that's an interesting. Okay. That's an interesting. Um, you know, it's sort of it's a bit dis- debated. That I know a number of people in the out of body sort of experience community who argue it doesn't exist because they've never seen it or because they don't always see it. Um, but as far as I can tell, um, you know, like most of the experienced OBE practitioners who've written about it at some point yeah. or another have seen the silver cord, their own silver cord, have experienced it. Um, it's written about like Aboriginal uh, people here. I work with Aboriginal people in Australia and oh, they talk, they wow, talk yeah. about, they don't call it a silver cord, but they talk about a cord that allows yeah. them to fly around the sky. And, um, and, and you know, Kim, yeah. that is such a powerful phenomenon. And the American Indian, uh, who, who are hugely connected to the sacredness of Mother Earth, huge, they know that the silver cord is what brings them on their dream and, and, and uh, their dream and, and their, where they get all the knowledge and the wisdom they need, you know, when they travel outwards into the inner planes for information about their weather, about their crops, about their animals, about the, the the seasons of the sun and the seasons of the winter and the seasons of spring and autumn. And, and they journey. But without, you see, we can't have an outer body experience, Kim, without the silver cord. Because the silver cord, now, okay, we all have heard of the umbilical cord that is the shall we say, the nourishing line, the lifeline, while the baby is in the mother's womb. So while the baby is in the mother's womb in vitro, the, 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 the umbilical cord is the, the lifeline. It nourishes the baby. It helps it to grow. It, it infuses the bloodline with the mothers. It's all, it's, it's a beautiful phenomena that this baby is nourished by this umbilical cord so what happens at birth what happens at birth is the umbilical cord is cut so that baby becomes separate from mother and vice versa and one then is independent of each other right so the silver cord is the lifeline that keeps our soul connected to the other realms the silver cord is well, and to the limited. physical body, right? And to, to the, the physical body. It's actually now there are different disciplines on where that silver cord is. Is it some say it's under the breastbone, some say it's on the, the crown chakra, some say it's at back the of feet, the, neck, the, the yeah. back of the neck. But from from my what I visually experienced, Kim, with my friend Yvette who had asked me, could I be there at, at her time? She had been diagnosed with uh, serious cancer. And she had said to me, will you be present, Marielle, when it's uh, my time? And I said, it's a promise I can't keep because I said, the soul decides who's going to be there at the moment of physical death. The soul decides. And that's why sometimes people would often say, and I digress a little bit at the minute, people say, I just went down to the restaurant for a cup of coffee. Just... I went to the bathroom and they died and they're devastated. But it takes energy for the soul to leave the body. So if if you have somebody saying, please, please stay with us and crying and devastated, I can't live without you. You're holding the soul back. So the soul will decide 
who's best to be there that will create high frequency energy, high vibrational light, and not somebody that's holding. It's like if I'm out my if I if I'm trying to go out my door here and there's somebody on the other side trying to come in and we're pulling against each other. That's what happens when some a soul decides who's there and who's not, because it takes energy, as I said. But for my friend Yvette, and um, as I said to her, you know, I can't promise it. I would if I could. And she smiled and she said, oh, you will be there. So when her time came to be in hospice, she was the most serene and willing subject, for want of a better word. That's where the science comes in again. That so, totally surrendered to the inevitable that she was going to die. And the, the night she was uh, transitioning, I saw her body. I, I saw her spirit body, of course, and I had done the recoiling. And I'd seen her spirit body. It's The spirit body is, for somebody that may not be familiar with it, it's like, it's nearly like a photograph of your own body, but it's lighter. It's crystalline. And it it is much, much lighter. The physical body at the moment that we're living in and existing in is a carbon a carbon body and it's heavy and it can be quite dense depending on our level of spiritual awakening and awareness. So the spirit body was rising and her soul, well, it was rising and rising. And I could see that there was this beautiful like mist, uh, all this activity of energy and, and, and friction all around her head. It was beautiful. And, and I just got, totally lost in what I was seeing. It was like it was going on forever and ever. And then I saw from her breastbone, underneath her breastbone, this cord. And it was silver. It was luminescent. It was like, at that stage, it was like a piece of thread. I would describe it as a piece of thick thread. And it was getting thinner and thinner as it was pulling away from under her breastbone. And it was, and then it was hovering around her head. And then all of a sudden, the energy, the vortex of light that was all friction and energy, just it, it just got swallowed up. It got consumed into that light. And it was such a phenomenon. I will never forget it. And then that is when I truly, truly realized the silver cord was no more. So her body, from once the silver cord snaps or disengages, there is the point of no return. And the difference uh, came between the silver cord and the disengaging and the point of no return happens at death when the soul leaves the body. Whereas at a near-death experience, because the silver cord is limitless, we travel out of our bodies every night with outer body experiences, with dreams, and we can come back into the body. The cord is limitless. It can go out into the universes. It goes to the different planes of existence, where it goes to the different schools of learning. We meet our, our significant ascended masters, our wise counsel, our angels, our guides. And we get what we need at that time. But we come back into the body before we wake in the morning. 
or sometimes if it's happening very, very quickly, we can feel that our body goes into a thud or we, we're jerked in you the have bed. This feeling of, you have, literally have the feeling of landing back in your body, right? Yes. And, and that's what we call catalepsy because you're pulled back into the body rather suddenly before you wake. And, and that is why I'm saying, the, for those that don't believe in the um, silver cord, you, you cannot have, from my understanding, from my guides and from the spirit world, you cannot have an out-of-body experience without the silver cord. So the silver cord is what keeps us and sustains us while we're here. In the, it's our lifeline. It's like an astronaut, actually, for the want of a better analogy. It's like an astronaut going into space and he has to have his tank and his tube for oxygen and all that. And he needs a bigger cord when he's floating into space and standing on the moon or whatever. So that's the same type we need. We cannot do it without the silver cord. But we all have it. I mean, this is the thing. It's part yes. of how we're constituted, right? It's not something um, we have to earn or something, although uh, the capacity to perhaps leave our body with awareness is something that you have to practice, but um, or for many of us. Yeah, and, and out-of-body experiences, we all have them, Kim, but it's like having a dream. You know, we, we wake in the morning and we suddenly are like, God, I was dreaming last night, but I don't know what it really was, you know. Where then, you know, they, I find that our dreaming, our dream and sleep state is where the two worlds meet. Because when we're in our sleep state, the ego, ego goes to bed, the ego rests. And then there is an, the vibration for heaven is, is lowered. And the vibration of somebody on the earth plane that's dreaming or, or kind of traveling astrally, they meet. There is a meeting point between two, and that's where the ego, as I said, is put to bed, and and that's where the union between the heavens and the earth happens through our dream and dreams, uh, through our sleep and dream state. Yeah, yes, between the physical and the vast, and the physical and the spiritual, spiritual. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So. I would like to touch then on that final part of your book um, about love and forgiveness. And you've already alluded a little bit to the importance of, of um, forgiveness. Yeah. But, um, yeah, could you want to talk a bit more about um, how that fits yeah, in with our personal healing and growth? And Yeah, and, and you did ask me as well, uh, Kim, and I got, I, I, get, I got so excited about talking about the outer body experiences and the afterlife. Um, I didn't answer your question on, on the grieving, the, the grieving process and how some are impacted by it. But what I have found very briefly, what I have found those that believe, Kim, in, a, in an, an afterlife or have a faith path or have a religion, not that religion has anything but to do with us transitioning. Everybody transitions to the afterlife irrespective of religion, creed, race, age. You know, religion, it's not religion that bring, uh, that helps our souls to evolve. It's our state of grace. It's our virtue that we've earned while we're here on Mother Earth. And what I have found is the people that believe in an afterlife, 
they are able to manage, I would use the word manage their grieving much healthier and in a much healthier way. Because for those who have no belief system, it's like, that's it. So I teach those people how to communicate with their loved ones in spirit world through meditation, through letter writing, through journaling. So there is lovely techniques also in whereafter how to connect with your loved one, how to open up a two-way communication. Even if you don't believe it, it can happen if you have the desire in your heart that you really, really need to connect with your loved ones in spirit. And the, the fact is, Kim, our loved ones in spirit are very anxious to contact us as well when we are grieving. And they want to let us know they've arrived okay. They want to let us know I, I'm, I've arrived and I'm happy. I have no pain. I, I, I can see. Blind people see, you know, in the afterlife. There is no impediments. Yes. There is no, yes. I like that analogy is, you, you gave in your book about it's like someone going on a trip and then calling home and letting them know, yes, I've, I've arrived safely, right? It's um, yeah. not much different. And, and that, that's it. You see, uh, Kim, people want the, those in spirit world that have transitioned to the spirit, they want to get a message through. So what medium do they use? What methods can they use? But sometimes I've found there are people who are so traumatized with their grief that they are not able to allow anything in because the pain is so much. They're holding on to the pain. So with the best will in the world, no soul, no loved one in spirit world can come through when you're when because that kind of pain closes off your heart chakra and it's always through the heart. And as uh, the wonderful Helen Keller said, Kim, m- many, many times, many, many years ago, she said it was only with the heart that the eyes could truly see and feel. So the heart is the gateway between the two worlds. It's not the head, it's the heart. The heart is the, is the vista between the heaven and the earth. And that is, we need to have an open heart in order for our loved ones to communicate. And other times, if, if um, you know, if you're putting demands on your loved one, well, if you're really there, uh, switch on the light. Or if you're really there, um, make the electricity go on and off. So when you put demands, it's, it's not nice to put demands on a spirit that has just transitioned. And sometimes it takes longer, depending on what level if somebody crosses over that are quite conscious that they are devoid of maybe drugs, devoid of machines, when they're conscious, I have found that they, they, we see their loved ones coming. We know who's coming to pick them up. They see them themselves. They're very conscious. They're very aware. And they totally surrender. It's like they, they sit up in bed and they just put a hand out like my friend did yeah. in the hospice. But those that um, maybe have had a lot of drugs because of pain management, uh, and they become an unconscious um, person crossing over. So when they cross over into the spirit world, they need to be held in a kind of a, um, a holding place until they, they are brought gently out of their sleep state. And then they're made aware that they have made the transition. Mm. 
So it takes them longer to communicate. And, and you know, emotional sometimes, pain, right, as well. I mean, emotional pain, attachment to your physical life. Yes, you see. everything you've left behind. So in, uh, yeah. in Aboriginal Australia, it's quite interesting. There is a, a common practice for the people, the people that are left to avoid the name of the person who's died so that person's name doesn't get spoken so that the person isn't invoked all the time, right? So you don't want to be invoking them. And um, uh, people in, you know, in some communities where it's still practice, people will sing over the, the, as the person is dying and after they've died, they'll be singing all the songs for the country where that spirit should be going back to to guide them so there's a very clear process of a not bringing them back and b helping them you know helping them move on and this awareness that especially in the first time uh, period after death they can be yeah. unsafe they could be unstable they might be angry they might be disturbed they could be confused and so you don't really want them around until they've settled in properly on the other side this, and, and kim you are so right you really hit the nail on the head because there is always a reason why they cannot make that contact initially, especially if they have died. Also, people who have died uh, through suicide, people who have died in maybe car accident, fires, drowning, yeah. when they were not what they would, would be seen as ready. It was, they would was perceive it as it was. Yes, and it was not their time. So, but the soul always chooses. And, and, and but it's not something I would ever, ever say to anybody, you know, if their 14 year old has, has drowned in, in, the, in a lake, you know, the last thing I would say is it was his time. That was his soul contract. Never, never, you know. And as you said earlier, you have to be very careful how you would present this kind of information to somebody who has lost a loved one just because I have an understanding of an afterlife and where they're going just and make it all right. And 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 mm. grieving the loss of a, of a child is huge. And somebody who has entered their life through suicide, and uh, that is a very traumatic experience as well. And in Ireland years ago, there was a huge taboo. Kim, I don't know about where you are in Australia, but in Ireland, it was deemed uh, a passport to hell if somebody entered their life through suicide. Through the years and years of spiritual information that I've received from my guides, in particular Mother Mary, and I have a guide from um, Lemuria called Adama who works with me, and uh, I have a beautiful archangel called Galliano, and I have been reassured time and time again. That's why it was so important to write about demystifying the stigma of suicide. I have been reassured by them that every soul who transitions by suicide, they are received in loving arms. They are nurtured. They are held and cared for. Like this cocooning that happens if somebody dies that has uh, maybe too much uh, uh, intervention with drugs for pain management. They are cocooned. They are loved. They are nurtured. And like that, when the time is right, divine time, of course, they are, they are spiritually awakened very slowly, very gently to realize they have left their body. They're now in the spirit world. And then in time and with time, they are given the opportunities to learn on the inner planes 
where they went wrong, where did they lack the strength, the courage to stay on the earth. And they're also given the opportunity to reincarnate in another life, if they so choose to correct the unfinished business from this life. If that makes sense to you, Kim. Yes, of course. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Because I think with the suicides, there are different uh, cases of suicide. There can be different scenarios, right? In some cases, it perhaps was what was intended. There wasn't anything else left. But in many cases, there were other things really that um, for whatever reason, you know, for many factors that have come in, the consciousness wasn't able to complete in this lifetime. And so then... Uh, yeah and you see and you see uh kim it is so there are so many that the fact that i was almost for the want of a better word a victim of the act of suicide myself i understand where the person where they were coming from and there are no judgments uh in ireland years ago there was so much judgment about somebody who would in their life through suicide how could they do such a thing and i have to say that's that's one thing i i made a note of in your book because you say somewhere that you don't uh how to come out do i write down how you said it that you would never disrespect uh anybody with a catholic upbringing or your own catholic upbringing and part of me was going well why not you know because i feel the the religions have caused Mm -hmm. and catholicism but Protestants, you know, they've got their own. They've caused so much damage. You know, there's been so many abusive institutions. There's been so much disconnect between the supposed teachings of Christ and yeah. the practice of vindictive, punishing, brutal, you know, fear-mongering yes. clergy that, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's okay to disrespect all of that. You know, yes. Of course, you yeah. can always say there are good people. Of course, there are good people. There are yes, there yeah. are good nuns doing good work, and there have been priests that were kind and caring yeah. that are really there because they want to contribute. But they're actually stuck in a framework that, um, you know, institutionally is so damaging. And and you know, Kim, you are so right. They they are institutional. They're they. I would always say that they have the blinkers on. And and we must never, ever forget that uh, the Catholicism is based on on the biblical references and the the biblical records. But what people don't really understand, the the Bible was originally written in um, Aramaic, and it was 350 years later that they started to translate it, and they started to translate it into Greek. So a lot of its content was misread and misinterpreted when it was being handed down. And parts were, parts were omitted and parts were changed and, uh, you know, and then they became institu- part of... Institu- um, yes, an institution. Yes. And it became a kind of a, a power, a power investment rather than an investment in the soul. Sure, Pope, um, what was his name, Constantine, in the... Um, Sixth century, he removed all all texts where uh, reincarnation and the journey of the soul was written. He he had it removed, and anybody uh, who mentioned uh, reincarnation or or the soul gets multiple chances to come round again were deemed as uh, heresy. It was deemed as heresy. 
So he had he's responsible for a lot of the text being removed going back to the fifth century, you know, and yeah. and like that came when, when we were talking about uh, bless those that have ended their life through suicide. They do get the opportunity because there is the law of progress on the other side. They do get the opportunity to come back again, but it is a choice. It's a soul choice if they're strong enough to come back and they will be presented with the same challenges. But when they reincarnate, it is in the hope that they have been schooled enough in the inner planes, that they will have more confidence. They will have courage to step into their power at that stage and be able to, for the want of a better, to right the wrong of having exited prematurely for the want of a better word. And, and then, then I also talk, uh, Kim, and I'm sorry, you, I'm still answering the same question you asked me an hour ago <laughs> <laughs> about uh, the grieving process. One of the huge things, uh, and, and I will move on then, one of the huge things, uh, Kim, is about children. Children are the forgotten grievers. And parents think if there's somebody, like if there is a sibling about to die, if there's a parent about to die, if there's a grandmother or grandfather, they try and but they they try and protect the child from the pain, from the pain of loss. But these are, as Elizabeth Gubler Ross once said, that if children are old enough to love, they're old enough to grieve. And I have huge. I've worked with a lot of children because I was part of a Rainbows program, which was originally initiated in in the states many many years ago. And when it came to Ireland, I was part of, uh, of one of the facilitators for such a program. And what I found was that children that would come, uh, they would not, they'd be nonverbal. They were not able to communicate their feelings. And the, there's huge therapies that I would have used, like clay therapy, like sand therapy, uh, get them to draw. And you can see what, what they draw is, is, is huge. You can determine by the strength or the, the anger. They will, you know, it's amazing how you interpret it. But if you want a child to tell you the story, always guess what they have drawn incorrectly. And then they'll say, no, it's not that, it is this, you know. So children, there's lovely tools in my book as well for helping parents or helping guardians to help a child through the grieving process and the understanding that they, the children are extremely psychic and they're still very connected to the spirit world. And we forget that. We, up until the age of about seven, all children are very connected to their spirit home, to the spirit land. They, it's only when they start going to school or through cultural norms or through conditioning by the parents that they start losing this kind of uh, psychic ability that they may have had. And while others will nurture it, I've always nurtured it in my kids. And, uh, you know, and it's their choice whether they use it now or not. Uh, two of them have decided they don't want anything but to do with it. And one is very tuned in completely. Nicola, who who is very much uh, behind my my social media, because right. I'm, I'm not very good technically. Really not. I'm in the dinosaur era. So there is a lovely piece there uh, on, um, on on children and how to help them cope with their grief. And then the last part, as you said, rightly said, it's all about love and forgiveness. Because 
even Einstein, uh, even Einstein believed in a supreme Godhead. And I'm sure you've come across him and many of his quotes. And the one that I really, really love, and I have it in her after, he said, instead of E, which was one of his famous equations, instead of E equals MC squared, and we use the power of love multiplied by the speed of light squared, we end up with the most powerful energy, limitless energy on the planet, which is love. And love is the key to all things, Kim. It is when we go across to the other side, we are, we, and when we have this life review, eventually we have a life review. We're not asked uh, how many holidays we had. We're not asked how much we have in the old bank account. We're not asked if we drove a fancy car or one that was just a, a bone shaker. You know, we're not asked none of that. We're asked how we treated our fellow human being. Did we treat them with love and respect? Was our words loving? Was our deeds good? And interestingly, we're asked that by ourselves, right? So we're yes evaluating ourselves on that and the other stuff very quickly fades away for many absolutely and, and you know kim uh, you um you, you really stay, said it there we evaluate ourselves you know we've heard especially in ireland we were brought up with the day of judgment yeah. this day of judgment the wrath of god is going to be down on top of us and we're all going to be banished to hell right but of course, we know different now, and we know these were just uh, fear mongering dogmas to to make sure that we um, adhered to rules and ritual and regulations. But the life review, Kim, is what I have been shown is it's like a balance sheet, and good deeds versus bad deeds, and it's the words we used. Did we use loving words of comfort to help another? Or was our words uh, cruel and vindictive, harsh, like bullying and all those things that go on in the world? And, you know, then we are asked to judge ourselves. God doesn't step out of the cloud at that stage and say, oh, and shake his finger and say, oh, you were very naughty. You were very bold. You did this and this. But it's like you see a whole image of your life is placed before you. It's like on a television screen yeah. and you see you see everything, every word even, which scared the living life out of me when I was told this by one of my guys, that every word we speak is, is actually chronicled in our life review. And I was, oh, my God. Well, I was saying to myself, well, I don't always speak very, very powerful, positive words because I have my moments. Of course, I'm human. I'm occupying the human body. But... um. Even our words, every word we speak is, is, is chronicled in our life review. So it is very important. Words have power. Words have vibration. Love is the highest vibration on the planet. So the more love we engender, the more love we give, the more love we receive. And it's a, and love is felt in the heart. And, and that's where, that's the biggest communication center of all, in the heart chakra. And I think it's important, it's a bit like with the forgiveness piece, right? Like it has to start with ourselves. It's You can't be giving out love to other people when you're not feeling it for yourself, right? And 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 that is such a valid uh, quite a statement, Kim, because sometimes, 
you know, the vessel is empty. We've nothing left to give. I would often hear people saying, I can't do any more. I have done this, this and this and this. And, and when you ask them to take time to invest in themselves, like going for a, a massage, like doing a meditation. Meditation is what keeps me buoyant. Meditation and connecting with my God is what keeps me alive and keeps my energy centers active and anchored uh, Mother Earth and, and, and with the heavens. And, and it's so. You, how do you meditate, Mariel? What kind of meditation do you do to keep yourself anchored and alive? Years ago, when I was starting out on this, um, this journey, years and years ago, Meditation, I said, oh, my God, I can't sit for 20 minutes. Now I can be in a, in a place for nearly two hours and, 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 not, and think it's 20 minutes. It, meditation and visualization comes, it's different for others. And how I would what I would recommend if somebody wants to meditate, go easy on yourself. You can starting off play a bit of gentle beautiful music in the background with no words um just if you want to connect with your loved one bring a picture or a photograph of them in front of you and and just open your heart and ask them to connect with you that's a, a technique for if somebody's trying to connect with a loved one but for myself it is i just allow my i clear my energy centers i will use a bit of um, smudge uh, like sage, just to clear my energy. And, and then I will sit or I predominantly lie and I will have just uh, soft stivaggio. Have you heard of stivaggio music, which right. is a high, high frequency in the background, very gently there. And I just offer myself. I will do a few mantras and then I will offer myself at the disposal of spirit of what do I need to know now and what did they need to get through to me and this is how i as i said i'm just a mere scribe and then and do you focus I'm, on your breath or do you focus on your body or do you where do you breath do you is the most important breath breath is the most important and and some people just when they're learning how to do meditation they just breathe with the upper part of the body that we need to breathe and bring it right down to the pit of our stomachs. And we need to pull it right up and out. But we need, when we exhale, we need to hold our breath for at least six seconds. Now that can, that can go to 10, I can 17, 23, I can nearly go nearly a minute in exhaling and with that breath. And when I'm inhaling and holding i can nearly hold it for that as well and and that really settles and aligns the body it aligns me physically emotionally mentally and spiritually so all my body centers are in alignment but then if i'm stressed or if the earth troubles bother me so much then i just have to walk away from it because i'm not in a receptive mode so what i would say to somebody that's trying to Maybe for the first time, do visualization. Maybe instead get a guided one that you're guided, that you're brought on the journey and, and stick with it. Whereas now I don't need it. I, I, I just open myself up to spirit and whatever messages need to be given to me and whatever I need to work on. 
And I was going, so related to that, I was going to ask you, you've mentioned a couple of times your guides and you've sort of got very clear identities on who they are and you said they've explained different things to you. How does that play out? How do you communicate? Um, you know, is that a sort of experience? Because you said you saw your dad and you had the experience with, oh, yeah. um, with uh, uh, was it Mary um, in, the, in the grotto? And the uh, Mother Mary, yes. Mother Mary, so you had those experiences yes. where you saw them like literally in front of you. Like I'm looking at you now, right. yes, absolutely. Uh, and then but when you're communicating with your guides, like uh, they explain different things to you, like you were saying the guides have explained to you about suicide not being, yes. you know, uh, punishment or anything like that. People are received with love. Um, yeah. where, where does, how does that sort of communication work for you? Do you... Is this when you're lying down and you're receiving this information in your yeah. mind, or is it something? Yeah, how does it? How does it? It's happen? like a, a telepathy. It's like a form of telepathy. It's a hearing, and it's a it's a it's a, like a soul language. I would call it soul language. And at night, I will rarely, rarely ever go to bed without having a, a jotter and a pen on the floor, because. Even for where after, it was through their guidance that the book was birthed. And the way the book where after is like, as, as you can see, Kim, there is no chapters. So I had a major ski accident in 2018 and uh, I was left where I could not walk for months. And um, and I had to bless the snowboarder that took me out as well. <laughs> he shouldn't have been on top of the mountain where I was because he was only learning right. but that was another and you see like that Kim the spirit uh, the, will always if the if you're not listening and they're trying to communicate with you something, I'm not saying that they'll punish you but something will happen that you have to stop dead in your tracks and listen and become aware that okay what do you want, what do you want to tell me now. So if I never had my ski accident, I sincerely believe the whereafter would never have been written. Right. But I had time, right? And for the for a whole possibly two years, I was being given information during the middle of the night. And it was like a jigsaw. This goes here, this goes here, you need to put that there, you need to add this here. And then I needed to add my own, what was coming by the, the affirmations, some of the affirmation, all the affirmations are were channeled to me. And it was like, they showed me the outline of the book. And I remember one night really talking in my sleep and saying, but there is no chapters, I need chapters. And they said, trust, trust us, trust. And so that's how the book was uh, formulated, like a jigsaw. And the final piece of the jigsaw was the was on the part three for the love and forgiveness and to use certain examples. And um, then because I had forgiven myself, that was a huge uh, that was that kind of qualified me to talk about forgiveness from a very, very personal perspective. So love. And as I said earlier, love is the most powerful energy in the universe. And. We need to, as I said, pass on the love. It's like paying forward. We need to show more love. We need to show more love to our children because they're, our, they're going to inherit the earth for us. And we need to make sure that the legacy we leave them is that of love 
and pure light and that they are held in that they're always watched over. And you were asking me about my guides, Mother Mary, when she came to me that time in the grotto. She has never, ever left me. And as I said earlier, she has the more I have grown more soulfully, the more she has grown within me. I feel her presence when I'm doing healings. It's it's not me. I'm just the conduit. I'm just the her energy flows through me. I shake, I vibrate, my hands just, and I'm told exactly where to go on the person's body. My other guide is one of my other main guides is Adama. And and he and I believe through past life regression, I, I had a a lifetime in Lemuria, which is going back thousands and thousands of years, one of the ancient civilizations of Lemuria. Where where and would you locate Lemuria? I've sometimes Lemuria, wondered whether that's part of what Australia, like whether this is uh you know where Australia is now, a part of that. Is that where you have it or where where do you think it was? What I have been shown is Lemuria was um, like Atlantis when they when they when they were uh, being uh, devolved when they devolved into kind of a third dimensional energy field. Part of the high priests uh, they went and brought the say the wisdoms. They were the wisdom keepers. There were there is a a lot about crystal skulls as well, which I, I better not get into. But part of uh, the tribes, all of the tribes brought gifts and they went to various parts of the globe. There was 12 high priests and priestesses, and they brought the wisdoms with them before Atlantis sunk, before Lemuria devolved. And uh, part of the Lemurian people, they went actually to Mount Shasta and they created a city of light there, tell us. And I have actually been there. I've been to Mount Shasta physically, but when I came back in an outer body experience, I was also brought back again where I met my father who, and Lemuria is very high frequency. They're Lemurian people from what I see. They're very, very, very tall beings of light. And they, the crystals, they activated the crystals along the ley lines on, on, on the earth. Going back all those times, so we're probably. I mean, I, you know, this brings out my my because I'm an anthropologist by trade, right? And it brings out my my research interests and my ancient kind of civilization interests. So I'm, I suppose, when I hear you saying those things, I my mind goes to a time when the continents were in different configurations to where they are now, and um, you know, we call those different configurations Atlantis, Lemuria, yeah. and those sort of things. Yeah. And and from from my understanding that the one of the tribes went, as I said, to Mount Shasta, which is in California, and that is a huge big portal of light. And it the energy and the essence of you may not have heard of Archangel Gabriel. He his energy and essence looms over that beautiful vortex and that beautiful portal. It's it's like a it's an entry point between the heavens and the earth. And uh, when we had the 12th of the 12th, 2012, I was actually in, in uh, Mount Shasta because that was the moment in, in all of mankind's history where the veils between the two worlds thinned and you could feel, you could feel heaven touching each of us that were present on that 
mountain that day. It was such a beautiful experience. But as I said, Kim, when I came back, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> when I came back, Adama, and I had a very special reading, and there was one of the ladies, Arely Jones, Arely Jones, she left her place, I think, in Montana to write the Seven Sacred Flames. She was guided that she had to leave her home place, <coughs> excuse me, to write the book about Telos. And Telos is the city of light that the Lemurian people created after yeah. they devolved. Okay. So there is there is beautiful, there is so much information and there is so much knowledge there. But when I came back, I had had a reading by this very, and I don't I don't offer myself for readings too much to anybody. And I'm very particular, Kim, of in whom I would entrust my body for a healing because uh, I need to know that they are of the right light and the right vibration. So um, I had a reading with this wonderful lady and she told me that Adamo, who is one of the high priests of Lemuria, that he was uh, trying to make contact with me and that I would need to be open to his um, divine intervention in my life and it took three three years later he appeared and the ironic thing about it Kim is when I saw him it was like looking at myself so that's where all my interest in the violet flame came in and, and Saint Germain and and all his lifetimes and uh, so he's he's another one and then I have a, an archangel called Galliano who is very significant in my life now on this lap of the journey and different guides and and different uh, ascended masters come in at different times like you said earlier it's at a time uh, of what we need in order to grow at that time yeah yeah thank you mariel thank you for sharing um out of time oh, now so i have to wrap it up but i really enjoyed your enthusiasm and your vast experience you know and your own profound journey like I think sharing those, hearing those stories of somebody who's gone through the pain and really the depths of despair and then, you know, found found a way to reconnect and with the light. It's yeah, always very inspiring. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Kim, for having me. It's been an absolute gift. I bless you. And would you like to share where people can find more about you, your book? I don't know if you've got social media or anything like that. You said your daughter takes care of that for you. Yeah, um, my uh, the where after can be got at uh, six cents uh, publishing by John Hunt Publishers. It's on all the Amazon's websites globally. It's in Kindle and it's in the major bookstores like uh, Moonstone, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, various other bookstores, major bookstores. And my website is MarielFordClark.com. And all my other social media, I believe, is there. <laughs> Thanks to my beautiful daughter, Nicola. <laughs> yeah. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it. You can get more information about today's guest in the show notes for this episode, including any links to their work and their contact details. This podcast is a labor of love. If you want to support me and get some practical info, 
For your own exploration of consciousness, you can purchase my book, Multidimensional Evolution, from Amazon or other online bookshops. If you want to support your local bookstore, which I encourage, you will have to order it in. You can find some reviews of the book on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com, where you can also read my blog, which covers all manner of consciousness-related topics. Finally, please get in touch via email or on the Multidimensional Evolution Facebook page. Whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics, I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I'm sending you my very best energies. And the tune seeing us out is from the Finnish artist Axel Tesla. It's called Akasha. Akasha.